0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for those these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Turn to John chapter two as we get started this morning. John chapter two. Kind of nice having these uh, platform lights on. I have light on my notes, on my Bible. Been reading in the dark for nine years. John chapter 2, we are dealing with the first miracle of Jesus Christ and following the outline of the harmony of the Gospels that we've been using. We are in the midst of uh, the section that's titled Beginning of Jesus' Ministry and the fourth one of which is the first miracle from John 2 verses 1 through 11. Began this uh, portion of scripture last week and we ought to be able to wrap it up here this morning. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to bless our study, setting aside distractions, asking for our eyes to be opened, shall we pray? Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for its faithfulness. We thank you, Father, that the word transforms us by the renewing of our mind, that through this transformation process, Father, we are not conformed to this world, But Father, you shape our thinking, you fashion our our very souls into that image of Christ, and we thank you for that. We ask now, Father, for your hand of blessing upon our session today, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Check the battery level on my mic, I checked my notes, I checked everything except my cell phone this morning. All right, let me get that turned off. Alright, in dealing with the uh, miracle, there are seven that the Gospel of John will communicate. There are dozens and dozens, obviously, and most of which are not even in the biblical account. Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us many, many more miracles. The walking on water, the um, casting out of various demons, all kinds of things that he did. The calming of the sea, any number of miracles that Christ did. But the Gospel of John only counts seven Uh, I believe we've said on a number of occasions, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all written years before John, possibly 20 years, 30 years before the Gospel of John was written. And so the synoptic account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ is out there already in terms of having been given to the church, having been entrusted to uh, the believers there in the early Dispensation of the Church. The Gospel of John is now written as the culmination, not to repeat everything that was done in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but to actually present a number of different things that weren't covered in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, including the, the, uh, to really emphasize and highlight Christ as God, not so much Christ the King, Christ the Servant, Christ the Man, uh, which Matthew, Mark, and Luke all cover, but Christ as God, the Son of God, which is covered in, in John to an extraordinary degree. Um, and so the purpose is not to necessarily spotlight the miracles, but to spotlight those that produce the saving faith in Jesus Christ. These have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the son of God and that believing you might have life in his name. So, we're going to tackle each of these seven miracles, uh, significantly as we come to them. We'll cover all the other miracles too, of course, that are covered in the other gospels. But the seven that are recounted in the gospel of John are ones that we will certainly zero in on and recognize that they are part of a gospel formula. They are a part of an outline that can be employed to lead somebody to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So, turning the water to wine, in some respects, is the hardest of miracles to teach because you can read it in 30 seconds and say, okay, he went to a wedding, they ran out of wine, he made more wine. So what? Okay, you can be left with kind of a so what uh, question. Say, well, what's the, what's, the, what's the message behind this? What am I supposed to get out of this? How does this contribute towards the gospel of Jesus Christ? And there's really a, a tremendous amount of teaching in this passage, and I hope we can uh, learn from it and see the aspects that we have it here. All right, we left off with... Um, the idiom, what does that have to do with us? In uh, verse 4, let's just read down through it again. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to her servants, or to the servants, I'm sorry, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were six stone water pots, and we'll go on to detail the rest of that here shortly. Uh, But he's going to make the provision for it, but we're still focusing on this early conversation between him and her and the recognition that we don't just accept this as a negative statement, as so many do, that when he says, well, what does that have to do with us? And he was being dismissive. He was being negative. And Mary didn't take it that way at all, and I think we need to, if we're going to accurately interpret the Word of God 2,000 years after the fact, we should at least approach it on the basis that Mary approached it, and she was the one that received the message. (laughs) She was the person to whom he was speaking. And so when we observe the way in which she took his words, that will help us 2,000 years later make sure that we're taking those words the exact same way that she took them. See? All right. Rapidly, we did cover three points of study, and just to put ourselves back in this frame of mind again. Point one, Jesus purposed to go into Galilee. And his first stop was Cana. And uh, this helps us to bridge the transition from chapter 1 into chapter 3. And in verse 43, I mean, sorry, from chapter 1 to chapter 2. In uh, chapter 1 and verse 43, it says, The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. They also found Nathanael in verse 48. Uh, so it's his purpose to go into Galilee, and as he arrives in Galilee, We recognize from verse 1, the first stop there is Cana. Under point 2, we made the observation that both he and his disciples were invited to a wedding being held there. Verse 2 is where the verb kaleo occurs. It does not occur in verse 1. The verb occurs in verse 2. And the subjects of kaleo are Jesus and his disciples. He and his disciples were invited to a wedding being held there. Mary is not said to have been invited, but rather indicated as being there. All right, it's not splitting hairs, it's not being picky, it's not uh all the things that Timothy warns about about the endless disputes and wranglings about words. It is though a careful reading of the text and a recognition that um that sometimes there's too much that's read into it as opposed to simply accepting it for what it says. Uh we are not going to fall into that trap. We are not going to view um this as as being Jesus' fault or the disciples' fault or somehow Mary was invited to the wedding and because Mary was invited to the wedding, she felt obligated that that Jesus was in town. Well, okay, fine, Jesus is invited and that, oh, well, he brought all these hulking fishermen with him, these thugs and so forth and, and they drank too much wine and that's why they ran out of wine is because they didn't plan on having an extra you know, pack of disciples. And usually when I read these things, it's Jesus and all 12 disciples all of a sudden. Now there's a crowd of 13 that had been added to this wedding thing, and that's why they ran out of wine. You know, the text does not support that. The text doesn't even hint at that. And I think if we carefully examine it, we recognize that uh, Jesus and the disciples are the ones with the invitations, and Mary is not in we're left uh, not knowing what her status is or why she's there or what she's doing there. We just make the observations we make, and then we don't press it beyond that. All right? If, if, if uh, we're trying to interpret a passage and we force uh, something into it that's not there, then we have a flawed hermeneutic to begin with, and we're going to end up with a, with a flawed interpretation. Her specific responsibility in this wedding is not clear. It does not say why she's there. Doesn't say she's invited, doesn't say she's hosting. It just says she's there. We know that she has a concern for the wine, which may go beyond what a guest would be concerned with. But her statement to Jesus about it indicates maybe she expects him to do something about it. Maybe not. Maybe she's just simply informing him of a factual reality. She does refer to it as their problem, not our problem, when she says they have no wine. She doesn't say we have no wine. She doesn't say we ran out of wine. What are we going to do about it now? She says they have run out of wine. And yet, we know clearly from verse 5 that she does have influence with the servant staff. All right? She does have influence with the servant staff. Then when she says to the servants, uh, to the deacons, to the diakonoa, I think it's diakonoa there, uh, when she says to the, to the table waiters, we, they have run out of wine. Or and when she says to them, whatever he says to you, do it, they do it. See, and he gives them the instructions. Take these empty water pots here. These were the ones that were used for the, the, the hand washing, the foot washing, the ritual purification of the Jews. And now they're empty because all the water had been used for that purification before this whole process started. And they're just sitting there. And so he says, all right, fill those with water. Now, obviously, in a busy wedding and all the other things going on, they would have other things to do than just fill some discarded things with water, unless, of course, they were truly obeying Mary and following the instructions. In other words, she does have this influence with the servant staff. Finally, the last observation we make just in terms of the background for this Canaanite wedding, Canaanite wedding, I should say, Cana was also Nathaniel's hometown. And we know from chapter one he's picked up Philip and he's picked up Nathaniel and at least at least now Jesus Andrew Peter uh, Philip and Nathaniel are there at least those five and I believe also James and John because we have the unnamed disciple and uh, and I believe that unnamed disciple also went to get his brother so minimum there's six disciples here I mean maximum six disciples minimum four disciples. And we can assume that the unnamed one is there as well. But Cana was Nathanael's hometown. So the disciples' invitation may not have been due to their association with Jesus or his association with Mary. It may have had nothing to do with Mary. It may have everything to do with Nathanael. See? Scripture doesn't tell us, and so we're not going to bang our heads against the wall trying to figure it out. All right? This is simply the background. There's a wedding, Jesus is invited his disciples are invited mary is there they run out of wine that sets the stage all right under point 3 these words to mary are the first recorded since luke 249 now a lot of years have gone by since luke 249 he was 12 years old in luke 1249 in luke 249 he's now over 30 years old probably closer to 33 34 years old See, that expression is so vague about being at least 30 years of age or being about 30 years of age is so vague in that it's, it's pointing out that he was of age to be of service in terms of priestly ministry or any other adult capacity in the in the uh, uh, solemn assembly of Israel. But we don't view that expression as being a precise statement that he has to be 30 years of age in that given year. See, if we work on the chronology of Jesus Christ and we say, OK, he was born in Anywhere from 5 to 7 B.C. And he was crucified in 33 A.D. Well, then what does that mean? That means he was 38 to 40 when he was crucified. See? Some hold to a 30 A.D. crucifixion. And you can adjust the age there accordingly. In any event, at least 18 years have gone by here. Probably closer to 20 years have gone by. In between Luke 2 and John 2. Now, has he said things to her between then? Of course. He's had all kinds of conversations with his mom in the last 18 years. But so far as the scripture is recording, the words in, John, in Luke 2 and the words in John 2, there are no intervening words that the scripture records for our edification. So we look at those words. And you can list them if you like under some points A and some points B. All right, so 3A is Luke 2.49, 3B is John 2.4. And you'll notice they're both questions. They are both questions. And I think we make a mistake if we view them as being negative questions. We view them as being dismissive or blowing his mother off or just dismissing whatever she said. See, Luke 2.49, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in the things of my father? Did you not know I had to be about my father's business or in my father's house? Okay? Fascinatingly enough, The Luke 2 question and the John 2 question both involve idioms that are difficult to to carry across into even Greek and much less the English language. But it's it's not a dismissive question because we know what happens in the very next verse in Luke chapter 2. He goes with her and Joseph and returns back to Nazareth. So he's not dismissive in that Luke 2 question. He doesn't say, what are you wasting my time for? What are you looking for me for? Didn't you know I have to, it's time for me to leave your authority and go into ministry? See, it's not a dismissive question. It is a, it is a legitimate question, what we call an interrogative, where he is asking for information. He wants her to answer this question. Did you not know? In other words, don't you have the same understanding of divine guidance that I do? Because if I'm being led to do this, and you're not being led for this to happen. Well, now we don't have the like-mindedness. And Scripture says, you know, two or three witnesses, everything shall be confirmed. And if I have, if I, if I feel this is the leading, and you don't feel this is the leading, then I want to step back and say, wait a minute. Maybe I'm not looking at this in the right way. Maybe I'm looking at this with wishful thinking. Maybe I'm looking at this with immaturity. Maybe I'm looking at this with um, the impatience of adolescent uh, masculine youth. See, so he's asking her this question. Did you not know I must be about my father's business? And clearly she didn't know. She say, well, no, son. I didn't know this was time for this to happen. See, and Jesus says, oh, all right. Well, this must not be time for this to happen. And he goes back to Nazareth. And he lives there another 18 years or longer, 20 years or longer. see. Now, you and I can look at that and say, well, obviously, because Joseph's about to die. uh, Mary's going to be widowed. Jesus is going to become a carpenter. Jesus is going to be supporting his mother, supporting his brothers, his sisters. All right. There's a lot that happens in between Luke 2 and John 2 or John 1. See. There's a lot of work that he has to do in temporal secular life before he goes, before James and and the older brothers are are now working and supporting the family. So now Jesus can go to, uh, at, at least 30 years of age and go get baptized and begin his earthly ministry. So, there's a question in Luke 2, and it's not dismissive, it's not negative, and it's not insisting that he's going to do what he's going to do. Okay? And so we look at this question in John 2 the same way. It's not negative, it's not dismissive. He's not telling Mary, "You know, I don't care what you want. I'm going to do what I'm going to do." Cuz you can look at this question in John 2 very negatively. "What do you what to me and to you, woman? My hour is not yet come." See? She says, "Well, they ran out of wine." He says, "Well, who cares? Not my problem. My hour is not yet come." And and you could look at that as a very negative thing where he's just blowing her off and saying, not my problem, not your problem, none of our business. My hour is not yet come. I'm not going to do any miracles. But see, in the very next verse, he does the miracle. Or in the very next context, see, he instructs these guys. He says, man, pour some water. I'm going to provide the wine. So he's not blowing her off and refusing to do the miracle. He's doing the miracle. So we can't view this statement as being dismissive. Just like with the question in Luke 2. We also notice in her point C, Mary is neither rebuked nor discouraged by Christ's answer. Because when he makes this statement to her, she says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. She's not discouraged. She's not rebuked. She doesn't just, you know, fall silent and say, okay, all right, son, you're right. Not our problem. She goes and she starts getting with the servants. She's neither rebuked nor discouraged. And so we can learn a lot by what she does and how she took his message so that we don't take it the wrong way. We want to take it the right way. Not negative, but positive. Positive. And this is where we left off with main point four. This, this idiom, ti yamui kai soi. Ti kai soi. What? This is quite literally. T is the particle here, interrogative or declarative. What? Alright, what? To me and to you. Those are just the literal words. What to me and to you. What to me and to you. As uh, the New American Standard puts it, what does that have to do with us? Okay? And it can be taken very negatively or it can be taken very positively. It may not necessarily be dismissive. And I think the full context means uh, I think it's indisputable. I don't even think it's debatable anymore. Especially when you relate it to Luke 2 and you look at the whole context of this chapter. She didn't take it dis- to be dismissive, she took it to be supportive. Because as soon as she heard it, she went and started grabbing servants and saying, Hey, it may be supportive. You could render it not a matter for you and I to be worried about. See. No problem. Not a matter for you and I to be worried about. This is easy. This is just wine. <laughs> this is simply, this is simply the provision of a need. And you know, God the Father has been in that business forever. The provision of a need? What is that? That's easy. That's easy. We've got some harder things coming up, like the cross. <laughs> okay? So this deal here, with the wine, no problem. Don't even say another word. Don't even mention it. Okay? Not a matter for you and I to be aware of it. What is that to, for you and me? Okay? Or for me and you? This is the small stuff. The Hebrew idiom, sub point A. The Hebrew idiom is found twice in the Old Testament. Judges 11, 12, 2 Samuel sixteen ten. Part of the the issue, too, is that we're reading the Greek text, uh, but the statement itself is not a Greek statement. The statement itself is a Hebrew idiom that has been translated into Greek as it's been recorded in the text of John chapter 2. But the idiom itself, the expression, is not a Greek expression. It is a Hebrew expression. And so we're we're translating a Hebrew expression that's been rendered into Greek That's now we're trying to bring it across into English 2,000 years later and why we wrestle with it a little bit and even the Hebrew idiom itself can be either positive or negative. It can be supportive, it can be dismissive. All right? It can be frustrating. And and this is where really where we used the bulk of our time last week because those two instances Judges 11:12 was the incident incident with Jephthah, the judge, and 2 Samuel 16:10 was an incident with David and his two nephews, the sons of Zeruiah. And I like the way that this idiom has its two instances because we can observe one of them is supportive. The other one of them is dismissive and frustrated. Okay. There is no doubt that David was pulling his hair out, angry, frustrated, besides himself, just totally, totally at odds with his two knuckleheaded nephews. All right. All right. What am I going to do? I mean, Joab brought him no end of grief. Abishai brought him no end of grief. All of these things, even Asahel when he was still alive, these nephews of his were something else. And when he says, what do I have to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah? Clearly, in that passage, he is exasperated and he is just ready to, you know, be done with it. Okay? But that's not the the same context as we have it in John 2. We don't have anything approaching that with Jesus and his mom, that he's just so sick and tired of her meddling, he's sick and tired of her questions, he's sick and tired of her. All these. No, there's none of that. It's not a negative context in John 2. And so I think the example of Jephthah in Judges 11, again, is a very valid one to look at because it's positive, it's constructive. Jephthah is going to this king and saying, what is it between you and me? Where's the difficulty? How can we resolve this? Let me know what your grievances are. We'll settle those. We don't have to go to war. Okay? Very reasonable. It's just kind of a, what's the matter? Let's take care of it. Okay? And that's what Jesus is saying here to Mary. What's the matter? Let's take care of it. Okay? Very reasonable, very positive, very supportive. Interestingly enough, even the demons use this uh, idiom. They use it in Mark one twenty four. They use it in Mark 5.7. They use it in mark one twenty four, they use it in Mark five7. And I think the use of it by the demons has colored the way that interpreters will examine the use of it by Jesus Christ. And I think that's just a flawed hermeneutic. The demons use it, they say, You know, what business do you have with us? You know, why have you come to torture us before the time? You know, uh, the confrontation with Jesus, the confrontation with the Son of God. Very adversarial, very negative, very demonic, shall we say. Let's not use the examples of the demons in talking to the Son of God. Let's not use that to color our understanding of how Jesus uses a phrase with his mother. There's just no, there's no, uh, there's no reason to do so. It's, in, it's incongruous to try to do so. So even though the demons use it in Mark 1 and in Mark 5, 7, there is, that, that is no reason to take that as the basis for interpreting John 2. Are we clear on that? Especially when we recognize that both the Mark use and the John use aren't even Greek to begin with, but they have their foundation in the Old Testament. So let's go back to the Old Testament and let that serve as our guide. Let that serve as our, as our uh, basis for interpretation. And I think there we do real well. All right? I think there, if I can even be allowed to draw some pictures here for a moment, I think even there we can recognize that, okay, there's a, there's a positive use and there's a negative use. Right? And we can say, okay, in the New Testament, what do we find? Well, we've got the negative use when the demons are challenging Jesus Christ. But we could also have the positive use in John 2, when Jesus is talking to his mother. Okay? So this idiom does not have to be a negative one. And uh, the demons might use it negatively. But let's not just jump to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is blowing off his mom with a negative statement. Because that's not what's happening here. All right, point C then. English translators have an awful time with it. <laughs> All right, English translators. First clue I get, if I'm in a Greek text and I'm looking at it and wondering, now what's the best way to render this into English for a 21st century, not just a 21st century American audience, but for a, let's face it, an Austin, Texas audience. Okay, because I'm not trying to translate the Bible and, and create a, an English translation. I'm trying to communicate truth to a body of believers in a specific location. And one of the first things I can pick up on is if I pick up four different English Bibles and they've got four different translations, that's a clue. <laughs> that we're dealing with a text that's not the easiest to bring across in English. If I bring up ten and they've got ten different, that's a clue. If I bring up twenty and they've got twenty different, that's a clue. If I bring up twenty-two and I have twenty different translations among twenty-two different English versions, and that's extraordinary. And that's what we have here. Okay. Now, I don't know if you want to write all these down. I don't know if you maybe just want to look at them and, and read them. Um, this is how some of them look. What, do I have, what have I to do with thee, woman? That's how J.N. Darby translated his text in the late 1800s. What have I to do with thee, woman? Or King James, also the American Standard of 1901. Woman, what have I to do with thee, What have I to do with thee? it just pushed the woman to the front instead of at the end, but basically it's the same as what Darby had. Okay. The Amplified Bible not only translated it, but put a parenthesis in there to explain it even more. The Amplified Bible, dear woman, what is that to you and to me? And then in parentheses, what do we have in common? Leave it to me. Amplified New Testament. I don't follow that myself. Uh, contemporary English version, the Good News translation, both of which render this. Mother, my time hasn't yet come. You must not tell me what to do. <laughs> All right. You ever have a son that tells you don't tell me what to do? Okay. Well, Jesus is over 30. He's an adult son. He's been out of the home now for some time, at least going to... We don't know how long he left home before he got to the River Jordan, but he's been baptized. He had 40 days in the wilderness. He's been gathering disciples. You know, she may not have seen him for a couple of months, may not have seen him for a year, See, The English Standard Version. Woman, what does this have to do with me? I think that's weak because it doesn't include the you part of it. It's just the me part of it. and There's a you particle in there. Uh, What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? OK, that's how the Holman Christian Standard Bible translated it included both the your and the me part of it. But it made the concern hers and he has nothing to do with it. When literally it says what to me and to you and the me comes before the you in the Greek. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? How does that concern us, woman? I can't help you now, he said. It isn't yet my time for miracles. That's the living Bible. And yet, then he turns right around and does a miracle. So what's up with that? And then this one. <laughs> Jesus said, is that any of our business, Mother? Yours or mine? This isn't my time. Don't push me. <laughs> all right. Well, this little exercise could uh, maybe be a commentary all on its own of the value for paraphrases. <laughs> Things like the Living Bible. Things like the message, These, they, aren't, they're not even, they don't even claim to be translations, they claim to be paraphrases. They're trying to take the text and put it into a, uh, uh, a readable equivalent, try to put it into a more conversational, readable equivalent. And so you get things like that. <laughs> I don't believe Jesus Christ ever told Mary, don't push me. All right? <laughs> if he would have said, don't push me, we would have found those words in the text, and they're not in the text. That's just kind of an expanded, creative paraphrase. Woman, how does your concern affect me? Woman, how does your concern affect me? That's the New American Bible, the modern Catholic English text. How does your concern affect me? Woman, what does that have to do with us? And this is interesting because even even in the New American Standard, there's a difference between the 95 update, And then the original New American Standard Bible, where it just simply said, Woman, what do I have to do with you? It kind of softened a bit in the 95 revision. Woman, what does that have to do with us? And then the New Century version, woman, dear woman, dear woman, why come to me? I guess the effort to put the word dear in front of there helps take some of the harshness off for, for us, where... In our, in our use, just simply calling somebody woman is, is derogatory or insulting or somewhat dismissive. Okay, Back then, it was an article of respect, like saying ma'am today. Uh, Dear woman, why do you involve me? There's the NIV. Woman, why does your concern have to do with me? New King James. How does that concern you and me? Uh, the New Living Translation. Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? Finally, Wiest, those last three here. What is that to me and to you, woman? A woman, what have you to do with me? And what to me and to the woman? (laughs) All right. That's Young's literal. And sometimes he just slaps a word down every time he sees a Greek word. And that's what it's designed to do. Woman or what T uh, to me, Emoi, and Kai to the uh, woman. All right. In any event you see why the English translators have such an awful time with it. <laughs> and they render it in all kinds of different ways. So in, in the paraphrase I gave in terms of uh, what we had with not a matter for you and I to be worried about, not a matter for you and I to be worried about, what is that to you and to me? Not a matter for you and I to be worried about. You see, that is just as valid as any of these 21 other ones that they came up with, see, as communicating the idiom of what to me and to you. Okay, but we're looking at it positively, not negatively or dismissively. Now, looking at the second part here, under point five. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Upo heke he horamu All right Upo heke he ora mu Not even or not yet Not yet has arrived the hour of me All right my hour has not yet come Now Just like with this first part, we had to get out of our thinking that it was a negative question. We have to ask the same matter here with a statement. Is it a positive statement? Is it a negative statement? And all too often this is thought of as a negative statement. My hour has not yet come. In other words, what are you asking me for? A miracle? My hour has not yet come. I can't do any miracles. And it's usually thought of as being dismissive. But what does he turn right around to do? Well, he does a miracle. <laughs> so then commentators and other translators say, well, okay, hmm. He dismissed her. He said it wasn't his hour yet. But then, for whatever reason, he went ahead and did it anyway. Okay? He thought better about it. He felt bad about insulting his mom. He, uh you know, he did one in a permissive will rather than directive will. Because even though he wasn't supposed to... um You know, the father said, well, okay, go right ahead. And he did. Okay? I think there's a lot of problems with that approach. Just as there's a lot of problems with the approach if we view the question as being negative, I think there's a lot of problems with the approach if we view this statement as being negative. Because, again, the response in verse 5 is that she was not dismissed, she was not rebuked, she she didn't take his statement being negative at all, but positive and supportive. And so I think that if the question is positive and supportive, I think this statement is positive and supportive. When he says, "My hour has not yet come," it also is not necessarily dismissive, but maybe supportive. And how did that happen? Let's see. Fascinating. OK not sure how that happened. Um, Subpoint point A. This passage is usually thought of as, my hour has not yet come, so don't expect me to do any miracles. That's normally how it's taken. The problem with that is that Jesus immediately follows that statement with a miracle. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. the problem with that understanding is that Jesus immediately follows the statement with a miracle. And so it's amazing. You know, you're reading and they're telling you, well, this is what it means. This is what he's saying. And then uh, his mother goes to the servants and she just kind of throws her hands up in the air and says, okay, fine. I'm done dealing with this. I give up. Out of my hands, whatever. Say, whatever he says to you, do it because... He won't listen to me, so there you go. (laughs) Is that what she's saying? Okay, because really you have to kind of get there if if he's dismissive in his question and if he's dismissive in his statement and she's reacting to being totally brushed aside, then you have to look at her statement in verse 5 as being just an exasperated mom that's just as sick of him as he's sick of her. Okay. In other words, he's just, woman, why are you bugging me with this? It's not my business. I don't care about their wine. My hour has not yet come. And so he's blowing her off, and then she gets reacts to that. She throws her hands up and says, okay, fine. And she goes to the servants and says, whatever he says, do it. I'm out of here. He's the boss. He's the big cheese. See? You see where kind of the tone goes if you start down that little path. It's, 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 it's a bad tone, <laughs> all right? Obviously, because so much of this poor mental attitude and reactionary stuff would be sinful on Christ's part, and we know he never sins. So let's slow down, go back, examine... What if it's not a negative statement? It's a positive question. It's a positive statement. Mary responds positively. She's excited about what Jesus is about to do. She goes and she gets these servants, these diaconoi, deacon, table waiter servants, and she says, okay, get ready now because we're going to provide you with a wine. Okay? And I think in that context, everything, um, everything comes across in a much better way. Point B. This passage could also be thought of as a positive statement. My hour has not yet come. So there's no reason why I can't work a miracle. You see? My hour has not yet come. Of course I can take care of this. Okay? Because what hour is he talking about? Is he talking about his hour to do miracles? Or is he talking about his hour to go to the cross? He's talking about his hour to set aside everything and be crushed. So if you look at this as being positive, you could say, hey, my hour has not yet come. So there's no reason why I can't do a miracle. See, my hour has not yet come. So I am still in the work assignment to reveal the Father. I'm not yet in the work assignment to lay down my life. My hour has not yet come. That's not time to mourn and weep. It's time to drink. Drink. In fact, even the Pharisees couldn't get a handle on that. At one point, we're going to see, they're going to to be bamboozled. They're going to say, well, how come your disciples don't fast? How come your disciples don't don't abstain from alcohol? What is this with your disciples? They're eating, they're drinking. And Jesus is going to say to them, he says, you know, there is a time coming when there's going to be a whole lot of grieving and a whole lot of weeping. And I'm going to go to the cross. But for right now, it's not time for that yet. See, and I'll show you those scriptures here in a moment. So, let, we, if we're going to view the question as being positive, let's keep that frame of mind as we view the statement, my hour has not yet come. That's a positive one. My hour has not yet come. There's no reason why I can't work a miracle. You bet. Subpoint one. This is main point five, Subpoint B, sub point one. Are you following that when I do the outline that way? In the, okay. And you have that glorious husky gold up there now. It's no longer that puke lime green. I just celebrate husky purple and husky gold. Isn't that wonderful? Even though my team had a losing record and failed to make a bowl game this year. Oh well. All right, Let's stay in the Gospel of John, shall we? To find uh, how this author uses these words in particular contexts. John chapter 7 and verse 30. So they were seeking to seize him. This is uh, this crowd here and, and, um, in Jerusalem. And some of them are a little bit confused because in verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? <laughs> Look, he's speaking publicly. and They're not saying anything to him. The rulers do not really know this is the Christ, do they? The crowd's starting to figure it out. And they're starting to think that the Pharisees are clueless. The problem is the Pharisees are not clueless. The Pharisees know he's the Christ and they hate him anyway. And then uh, they were seeking to kill him. And it says in verse 30, they were seeking to seize him. And no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. The hour of his crucifixion. The hour to be seized the hour to be taken under their control and hung on a cross that's what the hour has not yet come is all about but many of the crowds believed in him and they were saying when the christ comes he will not perform more signs there's the miracles he will not perform more signs than these which this man has will he so there you have it right there the the hour can't apply to miracles cuz he's doing miracles He's turning water to wine in chapter 2. He's doing miracles here that they're witnessing in chapter 7. They're totally convinced that he's the Christ because of the miracles. But when his hour has not yet come, that's not for miracles. That's the hour for crucifixion. Likewise, the context in chapter 8 and verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Okay? Okay. And it's quite interesting by the time you get over to chapter 17 and he prays to the Father. John chapter 17 in verse 1, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Man, (laughs) like the opening scene in the Passion when he's in the garden and he's praying and you know. You know, fasten your seatbelts. This is about to take off and this is what's going to happen. And he knows it's going to happen. And he submits to it. Glorify your son. What a statement. All right, well, we'll get there at some point, Lord willing. We're still in chapter two for the moment. So repeatedly in John, the coming hour references the coming crucifixion. So for those who take it dismissively and say, well, my hour has not yet come as a negative statement, it's a dismissive statement, they have to also conclude that the hour he's talking about is the hour to perform miracles, okay? And if if that's what they're talking about, well, then ask them to show you when that hour comes. Ask them to show you when the hour to perform miracles comes, because it's got to come sometime in between verse 4 and uh, following, because he's about to do the miracle, so, when does the hour for miracle starting, you know, for, when does the hour for miracle producing come? Okay. Point of fact, the hour for miracle producing came when he was baptized. It came when he was indwelled by God the Holy Spirit. It came when he was anointed as a prophet, uh, uh, priest and king for Israel. It came at the baptism. And from that moment forward, when he's in prophetic ministry, the hour is perfectly valid to do any miracle that the Father designates him to do. Just like any anointed prophet would do. See. So the hour for his miracle doing came in chapter 1 when he was baptized. Point 2. Crucifixion. That would indeed be a time for sorrow. But until that time, the order of the day is to rejoice. That would indeed be a time for sorrow. But until that time, the order of the day is to rejoice. Matthew 9, Mark 2, Luke 5, all of these contexts in the Synoptic Gospels make it very clear that 30 years later, when the Gospel of John gets written, that um, this aspect of, of uh, rejoicing should be understood. Matthew nine fifty, and I think these are equivalent, in other words, parallel accounts. And so they'll all say, by and large, the same thing. Matthew nine fifteen, verse 14, The disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Okay. Keep these things in mind, because as we as we conclude this aspect of this wedding, there's so much more to it than just this one wedding. We're looking forward to another wedding, a much more important wedding, with a much greater wine. All right? Mark chapter 2 and verse 19. Again, John's disciples. Again, Jesus answered, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Luke 5. Yeah, because this adds the drinking with the eating. They said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? For the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. Sub so point three. Christ even spoke of his crucifixion as being a time of abstinence from wine. Christ even spoke of, the, of his crucifixion as being a time of abstinence from wine. You'll probably meet people that will swear to you on a, you know, a stack of Bibles that Jesus Christ never touched a drop of alcohol. Okay? And that all drinking is sin. And that uh, when it says don't get drunk, it means don't even drink a sip of even one drop because any one drop is sinful. Okay, doesn't say one drop is sinful. It says don't get drunk. Okay, says elsewhere, drink a little wine. Could be stomach reasons, could be other reasons. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry. See, there is a provision there for humanity. But I think the clearest evidence is that in contrasting John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, he says... The, uh, John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, see? In other words, he was under dietary and alcoholic restrictions as a, Nazari- a lifelong Nazarite vow. But the Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard. And that, con- that contrast makes no sense whatsoever if Jesus was the same teetotaler that John the Baptist was. See, there was a contrast there, and Jesus was saying, you guys aren't satisfied with anything. You weren't satisfied with the Baptist when he had no wine. You weren't satisfied with me when I was drinking wine because you say, well, you're just a drunk. Jesus says, I'm not a drunk, never got drunk, but I ate and drank with sinners to lead them to Christ. So, in that context, Matthew chapter 26, anyway, I just, I don't think it's debatable in this assembly, but I've met so many people convinced that Jesus never, ever, ever, ever drank anything alcoholic. And um, they have to... uh, cross off a few verses out of their Bibles then. Alright, Matthew twenty six twenty nine. While they were eating, this is the Last Supper, and he's talking about his betrayal. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread after a blessing. He broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, the provision of the communion table. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the, new, of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. See, prior to this night, he and his disciples regularly partook of such beverages. Prior to this night, he and his disciples would eat and drink and fellowship and go into houses and eat have dinners with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and all these other guests and stuff, people that the Pharisees never would have dreamed of eating with or drinking with or even going into their houses. But they went into the houses. They ate with them. They drank with them. Did they get drunk? No. Were they gluttonous? Of course not. But they were reaching the lost, which the Pharisees certainly were not doing. All right. But this day, this very last communion, when he has communion with his disciples, that's it. That's his last drink until the kingdom. He's got the cross work to do. and He wants to have full faculties when he faces that, and then he's waiting for the uh, for the uh, table waiters and the uh, the uh, marriage supper of the Lamb. Mark 14:25, Luke 22:18. Those are parallel accounts. And uh, say much the same thing that Matthew twenty six twenty nine says. Point C. My expanded translation and paraphrase. I use the word ma'am instead of the word woman. Does that make you feel a little bit better? <laughs> what's the little wine between us, ma'am? I'm not going to the cross yet. What's the little wine between us, ma'am? In other words, what's that to us? No problem. What's a little wine between us, ma'am? I'm not going to the cross yet. My hour has not yet come. It's not time to give up the wine. It's not time to weep. It's not time to mourn. It's time to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. So you see how this the question and the statement don't have to be negative and dismissive. They can be positive and supportive. See? It is a paraphrase, by the way. The word cross isn't in the text. The word wine isn't in the text, but it is in the context. What to me and to you? What is a little wine between us? My hour has not yet come, meaning I'm not going to the cross yet. So point D. Both phrases taken supportively rather than dismissively would prompt the response we see Mary exhibiting. Both phrases, that is the question and the statement, both phrases taken supportively rather than dismissively would prompt the response we see Mary exhibiting in verse 5. She's not rebuked. She's not dismissed. And she goes to these servants... Excitedly, eagerly, whatever he says to you, do it. And they do. Jesus says to them, "Fill the water pots with water." So they fill them up to the brim. And he said, "Take them." Uh, and he said to them, "Draw it out and take to the headwetter, So they took it to him. See, everybody's all excited. The servants are excited to start obeying. Why would the servants be excited to obey Jesus? Because Mary was excited to tell them to obey Jesus. See. Her positive, his positive statement led to her positive reaction, led to their positive reaction and produced the uh, the end results of the miracle. All right. Now, we've given you five points of study and all the subpoints, points, and all these other things, taking us down through verse five. And we're going to summarize six through 11 here in just two more brief points. All right. and Let you go for the day. Point six. Mary urges the servants, those are the diaconoi. You could translate it deacons. It's where we get the word deacon. Mary urges the servants to obey Christ. It's always exciting to understand the will of God and encourage others to obey the will of God. They follow His instructions, and the head waiter is impressed with the quality of the Lord's vintage. See, he doesn't just do, uh, I mean, if you're going to produce wine by way of miracle, you think it's going to be some cheap wine, some, you know, <laughs> some inferior wine? Absolutely not. Anything God does, he does with perfection. When he created Adam, when he created Eve, see, it was with perfection. I, I laugh every time I read that when, when uh, Adam tries to blame God for giving him an inferior wife. <laughs> you know, what is this you have done? And he says, well, uh, it was the woman you gave me. She, she gave to me and I ate, see. In other words, it's God's fault. He gave him an inferior woman. If only he would have given him a more supportive wife. You know, if he would have given me a, a better wife, I wouldn't have made this mistake. That woman you gave me, like somehow it's God's fault for giving him the wrong woman or giving him an inferior woman. See, no, no, no. God gives you the best woman on earth or the worst woman on earth or somewhere in between. That's totally irrelevant to Adam and his responsibility. Okay? But we know anything God does, he does with perfection. He gave Adam the perfect wife. And when Jesus Christ makes this wine, it's not some you know, some cheap thing. This uh, head waiter. And, and I don't recommend pursuing these word studies for any vast you know, theological developments but the uh this ark tree guy here rk is to rule and so he's the ruler he's the head and he's the top dog he's like the the maitre d as it were the master of this dining room um the tree tree meaning three clinos to lie the uh the the idea where you have these couches that are laid out there and you know you know a Greek custom or even actually a Roman custom where you're reclining and you're feasting and you're drinking, okay? This guy's a professional. (laughs) This guy knows his cuisine. He knows his wine. He knows his social customs. This guy has every aspect of, of etiquette. This is his business. He may even, in fact, be a slave who has lived his whole life in training to do this, see? And he uh, he doesn't know where this wine came from. All he knows is the best wine he's ever had. So um, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots, and they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, draw some out now. He didn't say draw some water out now. He just says draw out now and take it to the uh, Architriclinos. And uh, so they took it to him, and when... Trichlinos, the head waiter, tasted the wine, which had bec- uh, the water which had become wine, and did not know where it came from. See, but the servants knew, and that's really the key too, is the aspect of the miracles, and those who needed to know knew, and those who didn't need to know didn't need to know. See, the miracle wasn't for the head waiter, the miracle wasn't for the the, the groom or the bride, or so that the wedding wouldn't be a disaster. The miracle was so that there would be those who would observe the glory of God as it plays out in the life of Jesus Christ. And that includes the servants from verse 9, and it includes the disciples in verse 11. And he's impressed with the quality. The head waiter tasted the water which had become wine. He, um, he called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. I mean, that's the way you do it. And this guy's the expert. He knows how to do it. You got some cheap wine, you want to get rid of it? You can do that. But you have to wait until after you've already served your best wine, until after their palates have already been adapted to that one, and after they've gotten a bit tipsy, when they can't really tell the difference anyway, then you start dishing out the watered down stuff, and you start dishing out the inferior stuff, and they can't tell the difference anyway. It's only the first round that has to be perfect. Because after that, the senses are a little bit dulled, especially if it's really flowing in the ways that the uh, Romans and Greeks could do. All right? This man's the expert, and this is the best wine he's ever had. Point seven. This event was the first of his miracles. And his disciples responded in faith. This event was the first of his miracles. That's what verse 11 says, this beginning of his signs. So don't believe any of those apocryphal books or the Catholic stories and these things he did as a childhood, you know, the childhood miracles of Jesus and all those other things. They're not biblical. They have no business in the scriptures. All right. And the scriptures say this was his first. And his disciples responded with faith, it says. His disciples believed in him. Servants in verse 9. Disciples in verse 11. These that were permitted to view the miracle. And what was the response? The response was faith. What's the purpose of any miracle? See, I'm a little bit out of time, but what's the purpose of any miracle? It's not just for the gee whiz value of doing a miracle. It's not just to never run out of wine. You know, that would be great if I had a refrigerator where if I took the last Coke out of the refrigerator and then I closed the door... I could then open the door and find that the the 12-pack had been replenished. Wouldn't that be something? Right? Or, you know, leftovers and you finish your meal and you put the leftovers and you put it in the refrigerator and you come back the next morning and it's not leftovers anymore, but the entire meal has been recreated, has been resupplied, see. So whether you're dealing with the miracle here with the wine or the feeding of the 5,000 where he breaks the loaves and the fishes and he multiplies them and all these things, the, the, the point of those miracles is not that, well, we can eat whenever we want to, we can drink whenever we want to, and isn't this great? Okay? The fact is that God the Father has directed for a work of divine power to take place. And he has granted that miracle through his anointed prophet. And the, perp- and the, and the result of which is that those who observe such things would respond by faith to a message that could then be communicated with authority. That the disciples would know, this one is from God. That the, the servants would know, the deacons here would know, this man is from God. I need to listen to what he says. I need to respond with faith. I need to apply my faith to any message he comes out with because he is sent from God. And the Pharisees can come to no other conclusion themselves when he glance down to verse chapter 3 and verse 2. Nicodemus of the Pharisees comes and says, we know... Rabbi, teacher, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with them. And when, when Nicodemus says we, he's, taught, he's including all the Pharisees there. They had no doubt that he was from God. The, the, the miracles were undeniable. The only difference is the disciples responded by faith and listened to the message. The Pharisees responded without faith. They responded in pride and they hated him for it. And that's all the difference. They both saw the same miracles. But the disciples responded with faith. And see, this isn't saving faith. When it says his disciples believed in him, we don't think that yesterday Philip was an unbeliever and today he's a believer. See, that's not saving faith there, but that is the the faith of the Christian way of life, where we walk by faith and not by sight, where we witness God's working and we respond by faith. All right? So... We will pick up on this next week because we move on into verse thirteen, and we see the uh, we see the uh, driving out of the money changers there in the uh, <laughs> the great demonstrative um, masculinity and strength and courage and and uh, it bugs me to death when I see these pansy paintings of Jesus as some kind of a soft pacifist feminine kind of wimp with the long flowing hair and kind of the you know lovey-dovey gentle th- look say all right <laughs> anyway father thank you for the truth of your word and i thank you for my savior who is love if not lovey-dovey father we uh we love our savior he loved us And we thank you that he loved us and went to the cross in obedience to your plan and gave himself in our place. And, Father, I pray that we would learn from these examples, the examples of his miracles, the examples of his actions, the examples of his teaching. Father, we are commanded to be imitators of Christ as beloved children. And so, Father, I pray that we would learn what celebration is about and how we weep when it's time to weep, we rejoice when it's time to rejoice, And I pray we would learn these lessons soon. Thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.